This episode is brought to you by our Patreon supporters. Become a patron today at patreon.com forward slash into the portal. Hey everyone, before we get started, we just wanted to give a special shout out to our newest Patreon supporters. Thanks, Aaron and Molly. We appreciate your support and we look forward to having you in our exclusive Patreon community. Most of us will go through life without seeing monsters, without being tormented by something that cannot be explained. Pixies, imps, or perhaps even gremlins. To some, the word gremlin would at one time onset an unsettled feeling far beyond the thrills of a 1980s Hollywood film. In the 1940s, British RAF pilots began to experience something on a great scale that had only been scarcely reported in previous decades. Their aircraft were being attacked, harassed, and sabotaged by swarms of unknown entities, later dubbed the Gremlins. Many flyers claimed to have witnessed the creatures and spoke candidly amongst their fellow pilots. Others held on to their stories for many years. The following is an experience from a pilot known as L.W. Nineteen forty-one. It was a combat mission. I was a B-17 pilot. We were young. We were all young. I was 22 years old, and I was the flight commander at the time. That was the average age for officers. The gunners were usually around 18 years old. But we were sharp. We were very sharp. We were clean kids. And I'll never forget what I saw that day. Ground control, this is Sierra Delta 226. I have a situation here. There's... There's something under my wings. Oh my god, they're everywhere! I hadn't been flying for long yet that afternoon. I was very aware of my surroundings. These things were real. They were real, all right. And as I went higher, I noticed an unusual sound coming from the engine. Come in ground control. I have no bearing. My instruments are all wrong. Please respond. Over. I look at my right and I see an entity staring me right in the face. And then I look at the aircraft's nose and there's another one hanging there. Dancing lizards. This was just one of many incidents that occurred in the skies involving such creatures. The question is, do they really exist? Join us on Into the Portal as we investigate a strange historical mystery. The Gremlins. Welcome back into the portal. I'm Amber Ray. And I'm Andrew McKay. And we're back. (laughs) (laughs) Amber's classic. (laughs) We are indeed. We're back again. These weeks just keep flying by. It's crazy. It's like all of a sudden we're we're Saturday and we're recording again. Mm -hmm. It's wild. It's crazy. So much fun though. And this week's episode is a little different, I like to think. I think it's going to catch some people off guard, maybe kind of. It's pretty cool. It's different. Yeah, and it's honestly, it's been a long time coming, because I first heard about this probably, like, well, 
Eh, probably at least three months ago. And oh, at least, yeah. Yeah, it was on the list. It kept getting pushed back, pushed back, pushed yeah. back, but now... It's here. <laughs> but before we uh, we get right into it, we wanted to uh, oh. go over a couple other things. Yeah, we got some sweet new reviews. Yes, we did. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. <laughs> we appreciate it. Uh, yeah, there was some on the... Uh, well, one on the uh, American iTunes, which nice. I'll read out here. Cool. It was from Border Love. And he gave it a have to listen with five stars. Thank you so much, bud. He says here, these podcasters know how to tell a story that totally engulfs you. If you love these kind of stories, this is definitely a podcast for you. I love the episode about Braxton County. Hey, Yeah, that one's been really popular. People love it. Yeah, we got great feedback on it. Well, it's always nice to team up with... uh with, with Zenger. Zenger from Zang This. Yeah, I'm that really excited. We got this upcoming thing with him on his show. He's uh, planning on having us as guests for his Harry Potter series. Yeah, <laughs> that's going to be fun. <laughs> that's going to be interesting. Yeah, it's only coming up. We and do then... have another one here too. Um, so this right. is actually our our, uh, our only Australian iTunes review, and which makes us really happy because Yay. that's wonderful. So this is from Duty Dutrom. Um, <laughs> five stars. I've never listened to a podcast like this before. Normally movie reviews and pop culture stuff. But I'm 100% on board. Great show. Amazing for new listener listeners. Now added to the weekly roster. Give it a check. So that's Aww. awesome. Thank you so much, Duty. We really appreciate it, man. Yeah. And all the reviews and feedback that we get. Totally. I think there was one more, right? We wanted well, to... Yeah. Well, we got an awesome some feedback from... Uh, right. From one of our Patreon supporters, the Cronkite. Hey, <laughs> yeah. man. What's up? <laughs> Oh, we were just, yeah, I was so stoked to see um, your response to that letter we sent out to you. I apologize again for how terrible my penmanship is, because, um, It's yeah. way better than mine, so don't feel too bad. Like, Amber wrote the handwritten letter, and I just signed it at the bottom, because if I wrote it, it would be completely illegible, so... It was my first take, too. I yeah. didn't redo it. But it was really cool to kind of get the response just to see how like happy he was to get those stickers and just you know it's we're so soaked to have the support and mm-hmm. and then he mentioned that his kids love the show too yeah which is which is awesome yeah that's fun. really cool and the stickers we gave him it was the into the portal the uh okopogo all the cryptids in it so yeah. i feel like the kids really like that too definitely hopefully but yeah we do um we do want to get some of our black and white logo done up as well we're doing that very very soon for mm-hmm. sure that is in the works definitely and then I think just one more little update thing before we get started. So we wanted to just say that we are going, we wanted to apologize because we ha- we mentioned last week that we were going to have one of our bonus mini episodes up and it's just taking slightly longer. So, yeah, but well, we're going to have that up as soon as possible. We had to dig it out of, <laughs> yeah. out of the uh, treasure chest of our uh, garage band. Uh, yeah. And kind of piece it. I'm still piecing it together. So yeah. it'll be up. So it's going to be up. So you can go check that out real soon. Yeah. That was a really fun one. I had a heck of a time with the intro but it was uh definitely came out as one of my best ones i think oh all definitely the sound effects that those trumpets I, anyways it's super fun give it all away no it's super super fun so go check that out king john's crown jewels it's coming yeah. at you <laughs> all right well let's get into it i say let's get into it we are talking about <laughs> i say i say <laughs> i say i say <laughs> we are talking about the Gremlins. Gremlins. <laughs> and not the 1980s film. No. no. <laughs> so, of course, that's what comes to mind for pretty much everybody when I when someone <laughs> says Gremlins, right? Like, And I honestly can't even remember. Like, I definitely watched that movie when I was younger, but I can't really remember it. I only remember the very first scene when they're down in Chinatown in that creepy little shop. Right. And there's, yeah, the whole transaction occurs. Yeah. But honestly, now that I'm thinking about it, because we, we looked into, like, obviously, we were looking at tons of photos of these things, and mm-hmm. a lot of it was from that movie and they kind of look like 
evil Yodas. Yep. Don't they? Yep. They like definitely a little do. bit nastier looking. Furrier looking at the beginning anyway. Yeah. And then they turn into skin. I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a reptilian, like, uh, alien. What was it called well, in Chinese? Uh, the Magawi. The Magawi, right. Yeah. They do make that reference in the movie. Yeah, so in the movie Gremlins, yeah. So it's like the guy, he, he buys a Magawi for his kid. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's kind of one of the older origin stories for the Gremlins is like, yeah, this this creature in Chinese mythology, the Magawi, which is basically like exactly like they they covered it in the movie like don't feed it after midnight don't expose Mm. it to the sun you know don't do the xyz otherwise it'll turn into something awful and of course it does in the movie Mm, so but but that's one of the origins of the um i mean i love how we said we're not going to talk about the movie and now we're talking about the movie yeah well you you can't we kind of had to touch on it at the beginning right because like that's of course what everyone's going to be thinking but Mm -hmm. you know that's not what we're getting into so the movie was inspired by real events, mm-hmm. um, and uh, even though it wasn't like directly from the events, but the characters were inspired from the events, and it all sort of started in, it really came to be in the 1940s, hmm. but we're going to talk about a few other things too, because there were references to these very real creatures mm-hmm. attacking British RAF planes, both- And American. And American, started with RAF, mm-hmm. but this- yeah, like I said, it really blossomed into in the 40s, but there's references from earlier, too. Right. So we're going to get into all of it. The term itself, gremlin, is kind of disputed. Um, some think it kind of comes from the old English word grem or gream, which basically means to vex or to annoy. And that's kind of the gist of what these things were. Mm-hmm. Like, they weren't outright trying to kill anything from the stories so, that yeah. we'll give, but they definitely were annoying Annoying. So what were some of the characteristics? So there was definitely a myriad of bad behaviors that gremlins were supposedly responsible for. And this is, some of it's a little bit more nefarious than others, but things like sucking the gas out of tanks through hoses, jamming (laughs) frequencies on radio systems, uh, mucking up landing gear, or just landings in general. Right. um, Blowing dust and sand into fuel pipes or into sensitive equipment, cutting wires, tinkering with dials, jostling controls, slashing wings and tires, (laughs) banging incessantly on the fuselage. Uh, breaking one of, and not to mention even just their presence, right? These things, just the visual yeah. is a distraction. Totally. Yeah, exactly. So there, yeah, there's a ton of different things going on here. And yeah. is, is <laughs> All of it is going to affect you while you're flying a fighter plane exactly. or a B-17 bomber or whatever aircraft you're using in, in the second world war, which is already hard to fly, obviously. Uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, some of these are interesting because I feel like, you know, and we'll we'll get into it too, but like some of them are more kind of like specific than others. Like if a wire is cut, you know what I mean? Like that's really specific. You land, the wire's cut. It's not as if it's like frayed or something. Like it's a little bit more deliberate seemingly. Like not just like a, oh, it was neglect and now we're just going to blame it on the gremlin. Exactly. Or sand. If you're not in an area where there would be sand. Yeah. So that that comes up. So it's mm-hmm. very interesting, right? Wasn't there another substance that was found sometime? I thought you mentioned it off the... It's not in the notes or anything, okay. but it was something... I'm trying to remember. Was it like a goo? I know sand was one of them, and then there was like another one. Or maybe it was the opposite, where they were supposed to be exactly like where there's supposed to be fuel in the tank, and then there's just not. Yeah. So it's like... Just replaced hell? it with and something no, else. And no um, like sign of like damage, right? Like no hole in the fuel tank. It's just gone. 
bizarre. So things that should be there aren't, and then things that shouldn't be there are. Yeah. And these things work in in packs. They're yeah. not. They don't. No, act it's not alone. just one thing. It's, it's like a horde. <laughs> swarms and hordes of these things. Yeah. And, and the the range, the, like the size, definitely ranges. Hey, with the. Uh, some of them are like, oh, well, they're about two inches tall. Some of them describe them as a f- couple feet. Yeah, I think like it sort of averages out uh, at around a foot tall. Like, yeah, some are, some are larger, some are smaller, but kind of the mm-hmm. average was like, they're, yeah, they're about a foot tall creatures, which is kind of what you would expect from something like this, right? Like gremlins, imps, leprechauns, yeah. those types of kind of um, mythical foot, creatures. A foot big to me. I mean, a foot's I'm imagining like a tall, Tinkerbell right? size. 12 inches. Right? Would be a, is it but could you imagine, okay, 12 inches and there's a bunch of them? You it's know a what lot. I mean? So in that sense, that to me points to something that maybe isn't physical. Potentially. Because <laughs> in some of these smaller aircraft. But anyway, I, like that's just one theory, obviously. Like, are these things physical creatures? Are they, well, do they manifest? Like, right. That's kinda, well, that's just it. And that comes up in the description. Some of them are more as if they're physical. Some are more as if they're metaphysical. Or like ghosts. You know, the the descriptions are definitely yeah, ghosts. That's another one too. With they glowing eyes and horns. Yeah, and glowing red eyes. That's yeah. a characteristic. Like the descriptions vary, but past findings have sort of linked them to. They have similarities to things like the chupacabra, which is a cryptid creature from Mexico, I guess, mm-hmm. and and, and uh, Central America. Yeah, Central, yeah. Um, well, Mexico's North America, but of you know Mexico and then further down in Central America, <laughs> right? Um, and which is basically a smaller version of kind of like a werewolf-like creature, but spiky back, red glowing eyes, kind of gaunt looking. So oh. people, so really, I always thought Chupacabra was more similar to like the Yahweh or the Bigfoot, or no, they're actually quite smaller. So like huh. they attack like livestock and stuff like that. It's like uh, yeah, it's kind of a smaller version of the same okay. same sort of deal. The Chupacabra that the brings chup- you back to uh, X Files. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, lots of similarities there. So like the large red glowing eyes, sharp claws, and the main one that was similar to the chupacabra is massive mouthful of teeth, like just huge, sharp teeth that are very prominent. Creepy. That were, you know, like you're standing on the, on the front of a plane, <laughs> staring through at the pilot <laughs> with this big, huge menacing grin of teeth. Ugh. The other interesting thing that I read was that there's actually some similarities to the creatures described at the Kelly Hopkinsville encounter. Okay. If you're not familiar with that, I would highly recommend that you go listen to the Astonishing Legends series on that incident because mm-hmm. it's really fascinating because it was sort of, we're not going to get into it, but it's sort of a uh, weird in between a cryptid creature, alien incident. It's sort of sort of bizarre. It sort of blends together into this. Yeah. Right? So it's basically these little goblin-like creatures attacking a house like in miniature. Kelly Hopkinsville. Miniature. <laughs> Owl-sized. <laughs> Mr. Nickel. Owl-sized. <laughs> um, yeah, so similar. This was in the 50s, right? That was the, in the 50s, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, so, that, was, like, that was a very, classic encounter case, though. Definitely. Like, and, yeah, that that is actually an interesting... So it's like these, so if they are connected, there's an instance on the ground Hmm. later on after the forties. In that case though, there was, there was a craft, wasn't there? I feel like there was. Yeah, I think there was was, too. Like, and they had like seen it land in the field and and from a distance. I think that's how it started. Right. And the family was in the house. I believe so. Anyways, we're not going to go through the whole thing, but. Right. The point is that the creatures themselves were very similar. And the point I was trying to make was that it, that is one potential differentiation yeah, because totally. in all of these accounts that we're about to get into you don't there's no craft involved it's them right m- like basically just showing up 
somehow either they're there the whole time or they have like <laughs> Superman abilities. <laughs> it's like yeah, well, they just, they almost just materialize out of the clouds. Yeah. It's like they're some some of the pilots describe them as like living in the clouds. Mm-hmm. So that's cool. Sky very, creatures. Yeah. Right. Sky of course, you know, you can already, all of you listening can already tell that and, that I'm, Andrew, is going to be getting into some sort of interdimensional theory <laughs> at some point, because that's just, I can't not, right? But you have to remember, there is a skeptical perspective in this whole thing. Yeah. And, yeah, I, I came across this one <laughs> description of the gremlin from the Ashgate Encyclopedia of Literary and Cinematic Monsters. It was okay. an anthology. And they, this is the quote here, it says... Variant descriptions of gremlins indicate that they may have green skin or be blue, have reptilian features, or be hairy, or some combination of both, with accoutrements varying from horns to gnarled teeth concealed within a diabolic smile. Mm. Regardless of the depiction, they mainly functioned as an alibi for the failed upkeep of highly mechanized combat airplanes put into military service by British and American forces alike. Gremlins, in practical history, seem to be scapegoats for human and mechanical error. End quote. Right. <laughs> and so you can definitely see how a lot of these... Yeah, you definitely there would be a large amount of cases that yeah. were the result of human or mechanical error or failed upkeep or something. Yeah. But I would argue not all of them. And there is a lot of pilots reporting this, which yeah, could be it's... a result of something else could be substance based. We'll get into that as one of the theories. Definitely. And obviously the other idea that these pilots were in in confined spaces in very like, you know, like high um, altitudes, cold high weather, altitudes, long cold time weather by themselves yeah. in isolation. So that could all be factors that would maybe enhance perceptions of things that maybe aren't there. Totally. That's a nice way of saying hallucination. <laughs> but, right. You know, but, but then on the but, flip side, of course, you have pilots that have responded to some of this and basically yeah. take offense to it. And there's physical evidence too involved in some of them as right. well. So it's not just in their heads. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Because like that, you know, and, and again, like we're, we'll talk about this in the theory section, but it's like, it makes total sense if you've been in the air for a long time, or if you've, you're, if you're at, you've been at a high altitude for a long time. But some of these instances have happened like shortly after takeoff, you know, like you're not in the air okay. for a long time. Yeah. Um, and you start to see weird stuff. So, mm-hmm. you know, that that all comes into play, right? Because it matters. It matters how long you've been in the air. It does. It matters how high up you are, how cold you are, how little you've eaten. All what stuff. other things might be in your uh, prescribed diet right. for the military. But, and that is definitely something that might be a part of this. But right. at the same time, I have other um, counter arguments to that theory as well, but we're not really going to get into that yeah. at this particular moment. I mean, the, the thing is, is like, too, is like right here when we get, we're going to talk about some of the main characteristics, we've already mentioned them before, but mm-hmm. like the thing that stands out to me with a lot of the accounts that we're going to give in a sec is that the, they look the same, these gremlins, mm-hmm. right? So it's like, yeah, it's kind of going through the grapevine pilots are talking about this. And maybe there was some stories that had surfaced, surfaced from earlier, like the 1920s and stuff like that. Yeah. But there's, a, there's just, the similarities are so, like, there's not much crossover. Like there's a few mm-hmm. kind of subtleties, like, oh, maybe it's green skin, maybe it's blue skin. But for the most part, it's very, very, like people are seeing the same thing. Yeah. Not I, a lot of contradiction. No. And I think that means something. Yeah. That does... Yeah, the consistency in the accounts, that definitely lends legitimacy to the overall phenomena, I would say. And for me, it was the, the interesting thing was that it wasn't just one 
Yeah. It was the, the hive mentality of these creatures. Like, they're, they appear in swarms. Yeah. And again, I'm going to reference X-Files. Remember that one episode <laughs> where they were in the woods and they it was, like, loggers and they were doing, like, deep forest logging and they ended up releasing that swarm oh. of, like, iridescent-looking, like, almost like... Uh, like tree people. They were, like, invisible, tree. like, forest people No, no, not that one. Oh, different ones. No, it was the one where it was <laughs> the swarm, right? The, the, the oh, iridescent looking, yes. like, okay. almost like little fireflies. And they right. came and they just, like, they made those weird, yes, like, like, webs. The, yeah. And, and just, like, I don't even know if they were, like, devouring people or just, like, mummifying them. They were, them, like, or, mummifying them and digesting them in yeah. the cocoon or right, whatever. Right, right, right. And that, anyway, sorry, just hive mentality, that sort of thing. really <laughs> reminded me of that. Obviously... A lot of these cases that we're going to cover were not uh, fatalities by any means, but maybe there were fatalities well, that were just we know, never... Right? Exactly, right? How would you know? Exactly. Yeah. So, in general, yeah, they're nefarious, they're troublemakers, but not deadly, working in groups, miniature in size, almost have descriptions like similar to like fairies or sprites in some cultures, right? The, a similar troublemaker type... Uh, function yeah. and um the idea that it's a half physical entity half spirit maybe yeah that's interesting like yeah yeah because it because it materializes out of nowhere but then it 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 physically does stuff exactly and another very very interesting thing about the gremlin is that it is only found in accounts related to aircraft you don't see the same things with boats you don't see the same things with tanks like with other like mechanical equipment used by the army or anything right and that will play into one of my counter arguments for one of the theories (laughs) again i'm just like i'm just teasing all you guys i'm sorry but that is fascinating though right that it is that it that it was that it was more or less so it's air-based. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At least for this stage of gremlins, right? Like, obviously, like, if we go way back in history, like, we give the brief kind of, like, the origin is the Magawi. Mm-hmm. These things have existed well before, like, the machinery of the... Is that really the, the same thing, though? It's because... not the exact same, but it's just the... People have reported creatures like this, though, right? That they... That they in Greek mythology too, okay. I'm, just, I'm 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 forgetting the name. And we but is there that precedent where it's like don't feed them after midnight, or is that no? Just I think that's specific to the Magawi. Okay. But but the overarching kind of theme of it is similar cross culturally, where it's basically like these things aren't going to kill you necessarily, but they're just these don't mess with them because they'll mess with you. Yeah. And even if you don't mess with them, they're probably going to mess with you. Interesting. It's uh, but again, does function as a scapegoat in a lot of cases. Very too, much. So. I would imagine. Very much so. Hmm. Definitely. But then it's like the question of why, why wouldn't she want, obviously summer U-boats needed scapegoats too. Not that she would like, right? Other, other, other missions would need scapegoats too, potentially. Nobody came up with a different character to scapegoat for other shortcomings or whatever, right? So that does again lend some legitimacy to this. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but I just think it's interesting. To me it does, because if... If this simply was just that, right? Like some sort of way to sort of garner morality and unity with the troops. and But the thing is, like, the classic use of that would be the enemy. <laughs> yeah, why <laughs> you know, would you need to make it? Yeah, exactly. Not, I guess you can't necessarily blame a loose screw on the Germans. But <laughs> well, <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Maybe that wouldn't really work. But anyways. Um, we're good. We're, we're, we're. <laughs> yeah. So anyways, main characteristics. Yeah, we've kind of covered that. 
Um, and all most of these occurrences are with single pilots. Right. So not a lot of witnesses around. Most of them. Most, not all. I think we need to get start getting into some of these accounts. Uh, yeah, and the one I'm really excited to dive into is probably the most famous, I would say. Yeah. And that came in 1927 with Charles Lindbergh and his solo flight over the Atlantic. Right. So this is fascinating to me because he is not a crackpot kind of a guy by any means. And he is reported to have experienced these gremlins on this flight, which he later wrote about in his memoir, um, The Spirit of St. Louis, which he published in 1953. Okay. So apparently, this was several hours into the flight. He was about halfway when he became aware of these little creatures on the outside of his plane. On the outside of his plane. Interesting. And that's actually, to me, I'm not sure how accurate that is. Because I came across other accounts that said it was inside. something different. Yeah, where yeah. it was inside. Right. But nevertheless, whether it was inside, outside, he he says, the way he describes it is that he became aware of them. And that they telepathically communicated with him. Interesting. So this wow, is a quote. This so is a quote weird. from just this random website, didyouknowfacts.com. Uh, this is, quote, several hours into his record-breaking flight from New York to Paris in 1927, Lindbergh claimed that transparent-like creatures that looked grim and menacing, this, these are quotes from his memoir, transparent-like creatures mm-hmm. that looked grim and menacing, joined him on his plane. Unlike several of the other accounts, he wasn't frightened by them. This says here, this is from a different blog called theflightblog.com. It says, these spirits, as he called them, reassured him that he was going to be all right and helped with navigation. So that's Hmm. weird to me. And that maybe points to something a little bit different, but in a lot of the accounts, like, it does sound very similar to the gremlin. Yeah. And this is actually a direct quote from The Spirit of St. Louis, written by Lindbergh himself. Okay. So he says here, I've never believed in apparitions. But how can I explain the forms I carried with me through so many hours of this day? The voices that spoke with such authority and clearness that told dot dot dot. (laughs) That was the end of the quote. It was a Google preview of a, it was like a non-preview Google preview and it only gave me that that snippet. It was page 467. If anyone has a copy of The Spirit of St. Louis, I would really like to uh, look into that. But I honestly, I didn't have time to order it and then read it before this episode. So boo, sucks. But there was another um, another quote from him. It was a direct quote again from his Spirit of St. Louis memoir. Okay. This is a bit of a long one, but it is very interesting. Yeah. So I'm just going to read it out. Go for it. Well, actually, sorry. <laughs> 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 I'm just reading here. The, the last part of the quote is from Lindbergh, but the first part is actually from a... Another website. Um, I can't remember the name of the website at the top of my head. But That's anyways. okay. Go for it. Yeah. So we're going to read this out. The mystical experience happened in 1927 during the 33-plus-hour flight over the Atlantic. During the long and lonely flight, Lindbergh experienced an altered state of consciousness. In this state, he became aware of three parts of himself. The plane was filled with ghostly beings which were transparent and weightless. Lindbergh describes seeing with one great eye the beings around him without having to turn around. The beings consoled and reassured him in friendly human voices. As things progressed, Lindbergh's lost sense of his physical body, something reported in many mystical experiences. He recognized that although he was still attached to life, the beings were not. Furthermore, the famous transatlantic pilot seemed to experience a shift in his view of death. 
death no longer seemed the final end it used to be, but rather the entrance to a new and free existence which includes all space, all time. End quote. So that last part there, that death has hmm. no longer seems the final end, that was from him. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, this was a... Um, what do you call it when you're doing it a direct... An annotation. Yeah, so they were annotating the text and mm-hmm. just, uh, yeah. So that was very interesting. It was like, it was like definitely a transcendental experience for him, which is kind of, to me, it almost reminds me of like um, what some people describe after being in a state of uh, sensory deprivation for an extended period of time, where they just become... Yeah. It's almost as if he crossed over into like a different dimension or something, hey, where he's like able to see things that maybe we're not able to see regularly. Yeah, it's almost like... Yeah, it kind of reminds me of when we were... We were <laughs> this is totally unrelated, but like we were watching a Crash Course history video and talking about the Buddha and like how it like the original Buddha yeah. starved himself sitting under a tree. Right. You, you, you become aware of other stuff. Yeah. So a 33 hour flight, you know, at that altitude, freezing cold, all this kind of stuff. Amelia Earhart didn't report seeing <laughs> similar yeah. things. And she did a solo flight across the Atlantic that took a little bit less time, I think just by a few hours or something. But I mean, ridiculously long flight, mm-hmm. not to say that everybody flying solo in those conditions is going to have the same experience necessarily, but that is really that is just a strange story isn't it and obviously like these things were with him for several hours it wasn't as if like they were just there and then gone right and and it was very it it sounded very um gradual or natural the transition for him into Mm -hmm. that state of consciousness but again this definitely has some inconsistencies as far as like being related to the gremlins because of the fact that there isn't they weren't really tinkering with anything. If anything, they were just more just helping him through it. So this could be more of just like a spiritual experience. It, that's what it sounds like. Mm-hmm. It, it's definitely unique compared to the other instances. It of... is, but it's one of those ones that comes up right away yep. when you when you look at Gremlins. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lindbergh is definitely associated with that. And the other main point about this is, of course, this came before the '30s. Yes. So this was this was post first world post Great War mm-hmm. before the Second World War, which is where this would really come into play. And yeah. some people argue that the origins are entirely from the forties. They're entirely from RAF pilots making making up stories. That's what some of the accounts we've okay. come across, which is quite frankly just not true because. Mm-hmm. There's this instance in the tw- in 27. We also have pilots from the First World War who were, you know, in their teens in the First World War. And, I mean, planes didn't come into as much... They weren't as significant in the First World War as they were in the Second. Obviously, it was more reconnaissance, things like that. Yeah. But the RAF was still a thing. And it was shorter flights. Too. Shorter flights, mm-hmm. right? But somebody who is a 17-year-old pilot in the Great War, some of them you know, enlisted in service in the second, in the second world war too, right? They were still yeah. young enough to, to fly or fight or whatever. Mm-hmm. And there's some accounts from that. So, mm. so we're moving on from Lindbergh now. So, yeah. um, and I'm not going to jump right to the second world war because yeah, here I am. So I got a 1918 account. So one oh. of the first mentions of the creatures can be traced back as, uh, to an early reference to them in the early 1900s. Okay. And then later on, during the First World War, so in 1918. Hmm. So this was a quote that was actually published later in a British newspaper paper called The Spectator. So this was an article from 1943, but it's referencing a pilot who flew in 1918 in the RAF. So it goes like this. 
I was in the old RAF service in 1917 and the newly constituted Royal Air Force in 1918, which first appeared to have detected the existence of a horde of mysterious and malicious spirits whose purpose... Sprites. Sorry, sprites. (laughs) Sprites. Whose whole purpose in life was to disconcert um, pupil, pilot, and experienced pilot alike. Mm. And to bring about as many possible of the inexplicable mishaps, which in those days, as now, troubles the airman's life. So, mm-hmm. so that was the quote from the newspaper. Um, most of the reports later on in the 1940s came from the Battle of Britain, apparently. But this guy, there was, it, it's actually nameless, but it was a, 19, a pilot in 1918 that claimed that their, their unit was swarmed by a horde of gremlins, basically. <laughs> Not a ton of other, like they weren't brought down by it. It was just a sighting. It was just like, don't. So the newly constituted Royal Air Force. eh? Mm -hmm. That's, yeah, okay, so we got a precedent in 1918, so that's really the first, the first story, and so that would precede Lindbergh, and then we get Lindbergh in 1927. Right. So that pokes holes in a few theories for my, that I've, that I've seen come across during, Mm -hmm. during research, so that's very interesting to me. Totally. This actually continues on here. Do you want me to read the rest? Because it's kind of interesting. So it's like, so such were the gremlins and all ranks of flying and maintenance personnel of the RAF who had as much flying experience during the past 25 years of their malicious pranks for that they exist. Of course they exist. Unquestionable that they do. And we know much about their life and habits, although the outside world is still largely ignorant of their activities. Hmm. Very interesting. Yeah. So... Definitely being written about as if it's very real, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I Yeah, that's a... Uh, I like that because, well, again, I always toy with this idea where I was like, did it come about first as just, just, a, just a nice, convenient way to sort of blame mishaps, blame mistakes, blame things, but then evolved into something much more real? Or was it the other way around, right? Where where it was very real and inexplicable and it was a mystery and then people started to capitalize on it a little That's bit. That's what like, I hmm. lean towards. What was, yeah, exactly. What was first? Chicken or egg here, yeah. man? Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> chicken and egg situation, man. <laughs> Which came first? Chicken or the egg? Aliens. Aliens. <laughs> <laughs> Good answer. <laughs> I don't know why that was some dumb meme I saw the other day. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, like like we were saying before, it wasn't just the British. This came from all sides. Well, mostly Allied sides. There was well, we didn't really come across any from the well, German. That, that's just side. it. We tried to find some. So like, so we we most of the articles that we looked into and the resources we found said that both sides experienced it. That it wasn't just the Allied forces, although there was mainly RAF and then later on American pilots. That would be interesting if um, we have any German listeners or people with German um, family members that were in... Well, this is is a reach. But if anyone, yeah, from that side of the world has any stories about gremlins or anything similar in concept to what was being experienced on the Allied side during Mm -hmm. this time, that would be really interesting because, honestly, we didn't come across any of that. But there was the one article... In what magazine uh, was it? It was, again? A, it was Life magazine. Life. So that was 1942. Okay. That and that's this article an American publication. Yeah. And they were saying what? They were basically saying that there were no indications that the Germans had been exper- that yeah that the Axis powers had but been how experiencing would they know? exactly. How would it's you know? It's 1942. Yeah. They're, they're the not enemy. Gonna, they're not going to tell you. Exactly. 
Exactly. Oh, hey guys, just so you know, we're not experiencing gremlins. Because they always they had those kamikaze bombers. <gasps> That's what if they really weren't good. actually kamikaze bombers, but <laughs> the gremlins got them. <laughs> <laughs> that no, honestly though, that is really interesting. And like I tried to find some German sources. I even looked on like German websites like .de or whatever, and mm-hmm. try, and I copy pasted a few things where I saw like gremlin, but it was it was just for the movie. Like oh, I, it was just sure. hard to find anything that was like referencing stories. Ugh, we don't speak German. No, so no. we we have a few friends that do. So oh. maybe we can get them to take a look at some stuff but anybody else there that's listening if you if you speak german or if you're familiar with this at all please let us know if there's any accounts on that side because we'll definitely do a little bonus if there is because that's something to be followed up on for sure yep but for the most part though we're just going to go with that both sides were experiencing this because that's what the majority of the articles we've looked at say Mm -hmm. and it makes sense i mean it's not as if the germans would be weaponizing uh uh, you know, these strange creatures that materialize in the sky just to attack allied forces. Ooh, you know what this reminds me of now? It reminds me of uh, that new technology that allows people to manipulate weather systems and create Ooh. clouds and storm systems in other areas and then suck, basically suck all the moisture and all the cloud systems away from others what? using various pressures. Crazy. Um, but what if these things are like basically that, where it's like these... <laughs> things can be manifested this is almost reminds me of like uh, willy wonka and the chocolate factory (laughs) 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 was it in the new one where he has like the the thing where he actually like makes he like miniaturizes and like puts them in the tv anyways oh my god i was in both of them both the original had that too okay i think okay yeah now we're talking talking about charlie and the chocolate oh lord (laughs) all right back on track here what are we at we're at 1939 Uh, aren't we i believe so Okay, so this one, this this is this one's strange. So, oh yeah, this was the really freaky one. Yeah, and yeah. there's debate whether or not this is actually linked to gremlins or if it's a UFO incident or what have you. Ultra terrestrial. Ultra terrestrial. This is the 1939 Berlitz uh, incident. So in 1939, there was a USAF uh, air incident that appears in um, a book uh, written by Charlie Berlitz. Uh, titled The World of Strange Phenomena, and it came out in 1988. But basically, the story goes that um, it was a transport plane, I believe, so it it wasn't like a solo flyer. There was multiple crewmen Mm -hmm. on board, and there was a crew of 12. And um, so a military transport plane. It was late in the summer of 1939, and the incident is just completely shrouded in mystery and secrecy. All they know is that this plane left the Marine Naval Air Station in San Diego around 3.30 p.m. one afternoon. It's oh, Sorry, it was a 13-man crew. They were making a routine flight to Honolulu. Three hours later, over the Pacific, they started to experience some some difficulties. We don't know exactly what those difficulties were. Hmm. Frantic distress call, distress calls started to come in, but they were basically like the the ground control couldn't really make heads or tails of it. It was just frantic panic distress calls Man. that something was happening, but it was kind of it was broken up. It wasn't clear. Then the signal died. A little later, the plane had they they aborted their their flight to Honolulu. And turned around and limped back to base and made an emergency landing. When the ground crew members rushed to the aircraft and boarded it, they were essentially, this is a quote from the book, they were horrified to see 12 of the 13 men dead. The only survivor was the co-pilot who, although badly injured, had stayed alive long enough to bring the plane back. Hmm. Just a few minutes later, after they had boarded the craft, 
the co-pilot himself died as well. All of the bodies, including the co-pilot, had large gaping wounds that were completely inexplicable. Inexplicable. Mm-hmm. Even stranger, the pilot and co-pilot had both emptied their Colt 45 pistols at something, but not at the crew. The rest of the and crew. There wasn't. Was there like there wasn't any bullet holes in? The plane itself, like the fuselage or like... You know what? That's a detail. They didn't give that detail. All they said was that they found the empty shells were lying on the floor of the cockpit. I'm assuming that if you're emptying two Colt 45 pistols and they are putting holes in the aircraft, then maybe that might cause more problems in limping back to base. You know what I mean? Well, there was no bullets found. Just the shells. Hmm. So... Hmm. Which is very strange, right? The empty shells were found lying on the floor of the cockpit with a foul, sulfurous odor that pervaded the interior of the aircraft. Weird. Very strange. The exterior of the airplane was also badly damaged, as though it had been struck by missiles. (laughs) So, that kind of connects to gremlins who, like, they bang on the fuselage, they attach themselves under the wing, Mm -hmm. and, like, do stuff on the outside of the aircraft. Mm -hmm. So, that was maybe a connection. It continues on to say the personnel who boarded the craft also came down with odd skin infections. Strict security measures were quickly put into effect and the emergency ground crew was ordered to leave the plane. The job of of removing the bodies and investigating the incident was left to uh, three different medical officers and it was basically hushed up. It didn't come to light for 15 years until an investigator named Robert Gardner learned of it and basically looked into it. It's a mystery to this day. So what, he didn't come up with anything? It's it's almost like a diatlov. It reminds me of diatlov pass. I was going to say, this is like a diatlov crossed with Braxton County. <laughs> Some, yeah, it's like, diatlov pass on an airplane is basically yeah, what it is. It bas- Wow, we should do an episode on this. Now. <laughs> As we're doing an episode. Well, no, no, it really, it, it do, it, no, it does deserve its own episode. It really does. The reason that like we wanted to include this for the Gremlins episode is just because, of course, the timing, 1939. Mm. This is a USAF plane, not an RAF plane. Okay. Which is interesting because it just shows that both, you know, two separate allied forces were experiencing something bizarre in the air. The The co-pilot that was alive, even for a short time, of course, didn't have enough time to tell anybody what happened. Yeah. He didn't tell anybody what he saw. Hmm. They couldn't make anything out of the radio. But the damage on the outside of the aircraft is, to me, one of the only things that really s- speaks to gremlins. Well, and if they... Because that's violent. <laughs> That's a very violent, violent incident. And if they emptied their... Sh- like, how would something get into the plane, right? What are you shooting at inside what, a plane? Exactly. Bizarre. I'm really confused now. Like, I wish we had pictures of what this plane looked like. <sighs> we should do more digging. I'd really like to... I think we'll probably do a, our, its own episode, maybe for a yeah. Patreon bonus, for a Patreon episode Ooh, or something. Yeah, let's do that. But, yeah, something happened up there that... That the that the pilots ended up firing at and whatever it was. I mean, of course, none of these other gremlin incidents uh, have uh, large gaping wounds and sulfurous odors. Uh huh. So that's kind of unique. But I, clearly, there was something up there that did something. That is so weird. And the fact that they were so badly damaged, like the the men themselves, like yeah. large gaping wounds. Like, what the heck was this? Like, some sort of, like, Sasquatch that, like, just manifested inside the plane? Third X-Files reference of the episode. (laughs) This reminds me of the X-Files episode with the, um, where they get stuck on that ship. Like, that ghost ship. And they all have, like, these lesions and, like, there's something strange going on on the ship. It's, like, this isolated, radioactive, like, whatever. Mm -hmm. They must have flown through... 
a pocket of something bizarre. Maybe. Maybe even something, maybe even the same place that the gremlins Ooh. are coming from. I don't know. Ha! Found <laughs> right? them. The mother load. Well. The home base. They flew through a real high density of gremlins if that's what happened. Because <laughs> <laughs> we're coming into a high pressure gremlin system. Can you imagine you just stumble across that? Whoopsies. Yeah. Wow. That is, yeah, that's, that's pretty brutal though. Like that's definitely, um, downplays the sort of, uh whimsical nature a little bit of the episode because this was a f- serious incident it was investigated like right at the right at the time and then later on by a researcher named jerome clark who ended up writing a book on it but this he was legit he was an american airman and he was sort of best known for being chairman uh, from 1941 to 1956 of the national advisory committee for u.s aeronautics so he was he was legit and he was he Jeez. was investigating this almost of his own accord because it was just swept under the rug that's insane Insane in the membrane. So that was, uh, yeah, I mean, just as the Second World War was getting started. But then we have another account during the war. Yeah. Yeah. So this was in, uh, yeah, the mid, well, early 40s, 1942. And it was uh, an account by this guy named Hubert Griffith. And uh, he, it was very interesting because he... Again, it was a little bit more um, nonchalant. Like, he he was very straight up with it, um, with his account, and just, it's... Yeah, like... <laughs> it's very, it's baffling. That, that, it is. That's why I'm, I'm struggling. Yeah. What am I trying to say here? But, okay, so this is a quote from his journal on okay. his initial discovery of the gremlins. <clears throat> quote, It is extraordinary to me to think that I had lived so long in the world without realizing the existence of a whole section of its inhabitants, the gremlins. I'm no longer operational air crew, but I did 300 hours war flying in the last war and have never heard the creatures mentioned. I was with a coastal command squadron for the first six months of the present war, then in France on an odd sort of racket. Hmm, wonder what that was about. Hmm. (laughs) And then in various RAF training sessions for almost a year on end. Still, I had never heard a hint of that strange word or of those strange little people. <laughs> little people, eh? Hmm. Quite by chance, I found myself in northern Russia on an RAF fighter wing. Gremlins suddenly became an accepted fact of life. They were disgu- discussed quite over- <laughs> quite freely on every hand. Their merits and demerits were argued about, just as if they were actual people sent to try us. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> So yeah, he makes several points during this. Um, so he had never came across the creatures during World War One, and then even in World War Two, he was in quite a number of units, and never came across this. Yeah. So it wasn't everywhere. So Interesting. Seemingly. Um, yeah, and I, I honestly had a thought. I was like, hey, well, maybe, maybe his arrival at this unit, maybe this particular, I don't know where this idea originated from. Maybe it originated again, yeah, with the squadron and just, just sort of spread as, as soldiers went to different areas and all that type of thing. You know how folklore yeah, spreads. Yeah. One person tells another person and so on and so forth. Right. But it's, it's very interesting, like how he says they were discussed quite freely and they were just accepted. And it was just something, something to look out for. And yeah. we came across quite a number of wartime posters that um, alluded to the influence of the gremlins, say in different areas, like oh, like the gremlins, they'll um, look look where you're stepping because gremlins will like they'll put oil slicks down or something. Yeah. Or, uh, or yeah, like watch out for the gremlins because they're tinkering with your plane when you least expect it and all this stuff and and uh, yeah, so they're. <laughs> So they're causing physical things to happen, maybe. I don't know. 
But he he goes on actually to say that uh, he had this when he was first came across this concept. He described his conversation about these gremlins, and this was in officers' quarters in um, his unit at the Kremlin. Okay. So he says here, uh, one of the pilots said, "Oh, they get out of the clouds and run up your wingtip, the wrong wingtip." The other added, if you're taxiing, they run down the nose of the machine and tip you up and you prang a prop, if nothing worse. You prang a prop. I don't even know what that means. Um, That was about as far as I got that night. A new subject was opened for me. The they was significant. They run out of the clouds. They tip you up on your nose, etc. Obviously, they were a sort of collective unity. They operated in droves or swarms. Was it hundreds of them, or at least scores, that ran out of clouds or in landing, upset the balance of the aircraft? One imagined them about the size of mice, or at the biggest, a procession of rats led by the Pied Piper of Hamlin. <laughs> End quote. <laughs> so that's interesting. He does. He doesn't disclude the fact that they could be a scapegoat for human error. Right. Uh, it's kind of leaving it open. He definitely does, but he's he's definitely. Um, uh, what's it called, um, agnostic about the whole situation yeah. and how, but this is interesting too, because he doesn't actually go on to describe his personal encounters that I came across. It was always just in reference in conversation, right? Yeah. Like just in conversation with his unit basically and others who had experienced it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting because I thought that we had come across something that basically that he had in fact, you know, ha- you know, experienced it himself. The, Had he? Hmm. The, uh, the one thing that was interesting about this uh, same source here, and of course we'll have all the sources for you guys to look at on the website, um, was that it basically said that uh, the, the unit in, Ru- the Russia unit, invest- was investigating this. Um, you know, it wasn't being experienced in all other RAF units, but they were legitimately concerned about it because, because pilots were reporting it. It wasn't just you know, guys joking around about something later on, they were genuinely concerned about like things happening with the aircraft. Exactly. So they would look at, they would do extra checks on the ground. They would be, you know, investigating whether or not there was like foreign objects in parts of the plane that weren't supposed to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unle- unless these RAF pilots were sabotaging their own planes to prop up their stories about gremlins. <laughs> a lot of these things that were going wrong with the planes weren't, typical wear and tear you know what i mean yeah now this is interesting too actually sorry i'm just back to the original source where he got this information okay. uh he says here this is a continuation of a quote from the journal the next night i heard from mickey rook in casual conversation in the mess about a new type of gremlin the spanjul or the ice gremlin this quote he takes at ten thousand feet Gremlins proper only operate lower down. <laughs> what? Right, interesting. So, so that's it's like different so again, like they're they're talking gremlin. about the merits and demerits. So they're talking about the different qualities of these things. Like that is that is very interesting. To yeah. Me. And he even goes on to say, yeah, their habits are a matter of day to day discussion. Um, there has grown up a mass of gremlin lore and even gremlin literature. The RAF, always by far the most inventive of the services, seems to have taken the gremlin, if not to its heart, at least to its inner consciousness. <laughs> Crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that's funny. And then he, he points again to this guy, Mickey Rook, and says that they're not always malevolent. Um, they can be playful. They can uh, they can uh, have a sense of humor, even if it is distorted or, you know, nefarious to a certain extent. 
So, yeah, but he never goes across, or sorry, he never, he never actually comes and says that he had his own experience. He's always just referencing different areas. Hmm. Yeah. This is actually a really cool source. So, yeah, this will be available in our references on our resource page on the website. So, make sure you go check it out. Yeah. And, actually, I'm really stoked on how our website's looking right now. Oh, it looks awesome. Doesn't it look cool? It's got, like, this weird, like, nebulous blue background. <laughs> and it's, like, I honestly just could stare at it all day. I want it to be my new uh, desktop background, actually. That would be really oh, cool. Oh, that would be sweet. Yeah. yeah. Can I do that? I Probably. I I can. I wonder. But, uh, yeah, so that was the account from from uh, Hubert Griffith. Hubert Griffith. Hubie! Yeah. Get on you, buddy. Thanks for that. And it's, yeah, like we, like you said already, like, it's kind of, it's interesting because it's, yeah, it's like an agnostic kind of approach to it. Um, it's more just a, like a research or kind of a... Yeah, word. yeah. No, it is. No, <laughs> right. It's really poor wording. No, it is, though. It's like, yeah, no, like, he was just kind of asking around about it and he was trying to make heads or tails of it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But... I feel like it reads that the people he was talking to in his, you know, in his group were genuine about what they were experiencing. Yeah. That's definitely the vibe. You know what kind of reminds you of? It kind of reminds me of, like, stats for, like, different, like, Pokemon or something or, you know what I mean? Like, because there's obviously there's differentiations within the concept of a gremlin. Right. Like, that's cool. The idea that one can operate over 10,000 feet, but others can't. What? What? Yeah. The ice gremlin? And then the fact that they refer to it as just a singular, not a plural. In huh. that particular Yeah, instance? so it's like there's no hive at a certain altitude. There's Maybe. no group. It's just a different species unless, or something. Unless it was just kind of like a, a dissociative, like, this type of gremlin, he does this. This type of gremlin, he does that. Like, right. You know what I mean? So they just kind of like refer to something. Well, I, there was a reference um, that I came across that basically said that, I don't know if this is true or not because it wasn't from a peer-reviewed source, but that they the RAF was actually starting to... Um, change their flight manuals to actually teach people how to uh, address different types of gremlins, what to deal, how to deal with them in different (laughs) situations. So, but it's like, you could take that as literal. You could also take that as a sort of a memory tool for being like, Hey, what do you do at this altitude? Yeah. Right. Like, what do you, you know, how do you make it this maneuver? Yeah. It's like dressing up the safety book. Like that happened all the time, especially at the city. Hey, when we're working there, Uh, it's just like a way to engage with people and make it not as dry. Right. So it's safety is fun. Safety. Yay. Yeah. <laughs> we kind of have just one more account, I guess, mm-hmm. that we that was alluded to in the... Uh, well, not alluded to. That was given in the introduction of the episode. But it was the 1941 LW uh, right. B-17 bomber uh, right. incident, which is kind of... Um, it's sort of vague a little bit. Yeah. He didn't really even give his account of exactly how he like brought the plane down or like how it ended really. But he didn't speak about this until he was 92. So (laughs) he came out very, very late in his life with this story that basically he had experienced gremlins that these little beans were capable of attaching themselves to the fuselage and withstanding high altitudes. And he, you know, we gave the quote at the beginning, basically he says, Oh, they're real. All right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) They climb inside the aircraft and hide in there and they hook up under the wings. So, That's crazy. And he's 22 at that point of his life, so he waited yeah. 70 years. I mean, obviously he was talking about it amongst his peers. Right, okay. But it wasn't, he never, he never spoke to a reporter or spoke to anybody about it until, until way later. And I mean, it's like, that's one of those things. It's like, he didn't try to monetize it or anything. He didn't try to do anything. And people, people definitely did. There was actually a poem that was written in the, in 1941 
Mm-hmm. That was then. Uh, Walt Disney was inspired by the poem and basically ended up uh, publishing a book that was called The Gremlins. It was a fairy tale about that, right? Um, I can't remember who wrote it. Do you have the name oh, no, of that? It was this, yeah, it was the same guy that did... Ronald um, Dahl. Yeah, yeah. Ex, an ex-RAF pilot who wrote The Gremlins. Yeah. And then Walt Disney wanted to make a movie about it, mm-hmm. but he couldn't really figure out how to make creatures who were destroying Allied aircraft lovable to the public, which yeah. is kind of makes sense. Um, he, okay, this Ronald, Ronald Dahl, like, he's come up with a lot of very, um, very quintessential, like, yeah, like, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, that's another one. Uh-huh. James and the Giant Peach, that's another one. Um, what was it called? The Incredible Mr. Fox or something? Okay. So, oh, no, that was another one, I think. So he's good at coming up with fairy tales, is what you're saying. He is, yes. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> hmm. James and the Giant Peach. I loved that one when I was young. Yeah, it's a good story. Um, but yeah, no, that's that's interesting. I, yeah, so he definitely took it to a whole other level. And then yeah. obviously that resulted in a movie eventually, which is mm-hmm. kind of interesting. You know, it's funny too. Like we've we've talked about the differences. Like we just said, there's the ice gremlin at 10,000 and other gremlins down below. There's a poem here that came mm-hmm. out in 41 or 40. Did you come across this poem? No. Um, I don't have to read the whole thing because it's kind of long, but there's just this one section that's really interesting. I'll kind of just read it from halfway. Um, It says, It's no good trying to dodge them. The lessons you learnt on the link won't help you evade a gremlin, though you boost and you dive and you jink. White ones will (laughs) wig... Think. (laughs) White ones wiggle your wingtips. Male ones muddle your maps. Green ones guzzle your glycol. And... Females will flutter your flaps. <laughs> Pink ones will perch on your perspex and dance pirouettes. pirouettes on your prop. There's a spherical middle-aged gremlin who spins on your stick like a top. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. So, I mean, yeah. I love that. It's a good example of, obviously, the sort of... Um, Cultural sort of side of it, the morale boosting side <laughs> of it. Did you get to the end part here where it says, told by PRU, pretty ruddy, unlikely to many, but fact nonetheless to the few. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I love that. That's really cool. So this is obviously a poem discounting the gremlins because they feel no, like it's a... not really. Well, I mean, it's... It says pretty unlikely to many, but right. it is a fact to the few, to the few that have experienced it. Right. So that to me... That doesn't... Yeah, that's not discounting it. That's, I guess that's not. That's just... Uh, yeah. That's acknowledging. That's that's a really fun poem. Do, sorry, do you know who wrote that? Um, It's not... It's not titled here. It doesn't say... Mm-hmm. I wonder if it was the same guy. If it was... You mean... Is there... Um, uh, doll. Griffin? Oh, oh, Doll. Possibly. Perhaps. That would definitely makes be... Makes sense. Because it would have been the yeah. same. That's in his wheelhouse. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Anyway, it's kind of a, it's a funny poem, but it's, uh, yeah, it, it speaks to, I just thought that was interesting. There's so many different types of gremlins. That is cool. Right? But they're all basically the same. They're doing the same thing. Except for the ice gremlins. Except for the ice gremlins. The ice gremlins. What does that even mean? Actually, that makes sense to me. If these ice gremlins are operating at over 10,000 feet, then maybe that simply means that that is a really cold area and there's, there's freezing happening on the plane. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because that was very subtle, or not subtle, sorry, it was just very vague, the account of that, but it makes sense if it's that high. It does. So I I guess we're getting into our theories section here. Theories, theories, theories. theories. It's time for some theories. (laughs) (laughs) Do you want to kick it off? 
Uh, yeah, because I think we're going to start, obviously, with the sort of um, skeptical perspective and the fact that the gremlins might be a result of simple hallucinations that may or may not have been drug-induced. Okay. Uh, yeah, so there is definitely a very... Um, large history of the use of amphetamines, uh, speed, uh, used by pilots, and uh, basically not just pilots, is used everywhere in the military. And it has a very rich history in America. So uh, the exact name is Benzedrine, and it was first developed in the 20s into the 30s by Smith, Klein, and French. And (laughs) it was initially sort of marketed as a nasal and bronchial decongestant, um, very quickly gained a reputation um, as pet pills, wakey-wakey pills, or go pills, because it was a very lively amphetamine. Um, And it definitely was a stimulant, heightened good mood. Energy was used by students, doctors, everyone, even housewives in the 20s up to the 50s, Hmm. and even beyond that, really. Uh, So (laughs) it's very interesting, yeah. Um, Obviously, pre-war, this was happening. So again, this could play into the Charles Lindbergh account. I couldn't come up with any actual direct correlation between him and Benzedrine. Okay. But you would think possibly if was people, using if, it. If they're using it to keep themselves awake and keep, you know what I mean, well, like thirty-three hour flight. Right. Yeah. yeah. That just seems common sense almost. Yeah. It's not like he's gonna bring like a coffee machine with him or something. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> yeah, um, it actually was. Uh, it was used in the war by the Allies by the British. Um, there's archives that contain records of British instructions on the use of Benzedrine in war operations. It recommended that soldiers ingest 5 to 10 milligrams of Benzedrine sulfate every 5 to 6 hours, not exceeding 20 milligrams per day, as huh. issued at the discretion of the unit's medical officer when sleep was severely limited for several days. So, hmm. doesn't that, again, remind you of that X-Files episode, right? With the, the Vietnam soldiers that were um, experimented on, and they were fourth basically... Fourth reference. <laughs> yeah, fourth reference. <laughs> boom. <laughs> Where they were basically um, deprived of all sleep, and they were their brains weren't able to turn off. Yeah. So this is kind of like the chemical version of this. Yeah. So it definitely had a very positive effects for alertness, and it had euphoric effects. It's actually the base of the street drug ecstasy these days. Crazy. Yes. And, but... There is definitely uh, notable changes in mood um, that can definitely lead to some irresponsibility, um, garrulousness, etc. Okay. Um, so, yeah, it could definitely have some negative side effects. And people did have psychotic episodes, even at prescribed doses. So, and this is actually well documented with um, the rise of ADD. Apparently that was used to subs- uh, as a subscription, subscription, right? Prescription. For people, and they definitely, yeah, a lot of children um, had severe psychological and neurological right. effects that did lead to psychosis in some cases. Okay. So okay. this could maybe lend itself to some hallucinogenic properties, especially if you are in tight quarters, uh, alone, flying in a plane at high altitudes. So, yeah, hmm. I'm not really going to get too, too into this, but there was this one um, instance when they were doing testing um, and this was with the Royal Air Force, um, Roland Winfield. He was studying these effects of Benzedrine on long-range bomber command missions, and he observed um, a bomber pilot suddenly plunge his aircraft below the cover of clouds into heavy anti-aircraft fire in order to, quote, press home the attack. And it says here, the pilot scored a direct hit. And uh, after this, Winfield, he uh, recommended Benzedrine for every RAF mission <laughs> for determination and aggression. 
and by early 1942, Smith, Klein, and French were supplying large amounts of benzatrine to the RAF. Interesting. So, yeah, and on the flip side of this, you do get the same sort of rise of amphetamine use in German um, military. Right. But by uh, about this time, by 42, they had actually dropped off. They they realized that it had Some highly effects. addictive properties and right. that exactly that. Like yeah. for their pilots anyway. Yeah, uh, for everyone. Oh, okay. Yeah, when they were doing their blitzkriegs, when they were doing um, just, just, yeah, when they were doing their stormtrooper um, offensives, that type of thing. Crazy. They were all on benzodrine. Right. Or not benzodrine, but it was a different sort of Some amphetamine. Some sort of amphetamine. That was very similar. Yeah, yeah. Huh. And so this is interesting here. This is a quote from... Um, Laurier Military History uh, Archives.com. It says here, estimated allied consumption of amphetamines during World War One, or sorry, the Second World War, ranged from eight hundred and seventy million dollars. Or no, is that eight hundred seventy thousand? Seven seventy thousand. Sorry, <laughs> of in sales of benzene sulfate in. Uh, 1943 to a staggering 72 million tablets supplied to Great Britain throughout the war. Crazy. Although the Allies had enthusiastically adopted stimulants, the Germans had largely abandoned methamphetamine by 1941 with German officials reclassifying pervitin, that was the one that they were using, as a highly um, dangerous uh, addictive narcotic. So the Allies kept using it, the Germans stopped using it. Yeah. And you know what's actually interesting? The reason that um, the Allies were so gung-ho on this is because they had heard about the Germans using it in their offensive. They're like, oh, right. shoot. Like, we should be using that, too. Maybe. Yeah. And so I that's kind of like I remember how... learning that for, like, the, the First World War Two, right? For that whole, the, mm-hmm. um, the Schlieffen plan or whatever. Like, when they marched, they had to march so far. Weren't they, like, on something then, too? Because they could just mm-hmm. march day and they night. They were, yeah, like, exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. All the early offensives, they would have been on it. Right. And it's interesting. Like, people might know this in uh, pop culture as the Bennies. Um, I'm not sure. Like, that's definitely, it's dropped off. Like, I was looking at several sources. Uh, Public consciousness of this drug has definitely declined uh, from the 70s onward. Like, basically not even talked about these days. But if you are from the older generation, you probably would know it. Right. Uh, And it actually, if you are a James Bond fan, (laughs) uh, in the series of books by Ian Fleming, um, the character repeatedly makes use of benzedrine in times of peak stress and typically during the climax of the book. So in in the first book, Casino Royale, written in 1953, Soviet agent Le Chiffre is noted to make use of benzedrine, an inhaler, as he plays Baccarat. I don't even know what that is. And then uh, the character James Bond's first use of benzedrine was in the form of tablets in the book Live and Let Die. This is a quote from the book. It says, he still felt perfectly fresh and the elation and clarity of mind produced by the benzedrine was still with him. End quote. So, yeah, I don't oh, know. Man. Can people be on Benzedrine and be hallucinating that they're seeing gremlins? The thing that you can poke I mean, several holes in this theory, right? Because right. this was used in all areas of the military. It wasn't just in the air. Right. And so. so. And then also the fact that this was used in the 20s, in the 30s. It was used by everyone. It was used by novelists, poets, doctors, lawyers. And they These weren't people seeing aren't gremlins. seeing gremlins, no. man. The only difference, obviously, is the fact that pilots are in high stress situations. Yeah. They're at high altitudes. They're at different varying isolated. temperatures, mm-hmm. isolated. Yeah. All those things matter, but it does also matter to know, yeah, that people were taking the exact same thing. You'd mm-hmm. think that there would be, you know, and they were taking it to the 50s, too, and all that. Right, so it's like on a scale of 0 to 10, it's like, okay, 10's going to be 
pilots experiencing crazy stuff because they're in high stress situations, but it's like people who are just on the ground, you'd think they'd be in a one or a two. Like there's still, if you're mm-hmm. overusing the drug, and you'd experience something. Everyone, it affected everyone differently. And those people that kind of had more nervous or anxious dispositions definitely experienced the negative effects more hmm. rapidly. Right. And it depended how long you were on this stuff too. So maybe if pilots were using it all the time, but it, in all accounts, it seems as if everyone in America was using this all the time. <laughs> it was like, pet pills were just the thing to do. Like, literally, people were popping bennies with their morning coffee. And that's how they would go about their day. Mm-hmm. There's so many, like, there's a couple, oh, I can't think of the names on top of my head. Some famous novelist that was, he basically was so hard on, on himself for this uh, chemical dependency is what he called it. But he, uh, he continued on because he didn't know any other way to stay creative. Right. But these days, we don't have that. And I'm kind of, like, thinking to myself, like, dubs TF, man. <laughs> if, if we had that when we were doing this research, like, I'd be up all night Yeah, well, probably. never mind. I mean, when we were in university, like, we knew tons of people who were um, taking Adderall. Oh, right. Maybe that's is, the current. It's, like, the the super, like, you know. That is probably what Bennies are today. That's probably the exact same chemical Similar, base. probably, right? Yeah. Just, like, a newer version. To help focus, right? I've never oh, tried. I'm but... curious now. We should look into that. Yeah. Because, oh, that was, that was terrible. I remember I took those, like... Really? I never tried. I never, yeah. And that was, it was weird because my doctor thought that I was having anxiety because I was too stressed about school. So he prescribed me those so that I would do more work and not be as stressed, (laughs) but I couldn't sleep. I couldn't go to sleep. So that doesn't make it. it, No, it was very backwards. I honestly, I don't like that doctor. (laughs) The one thing about this whole benzodrine thing and like the idea of hallucinations to me that like we've already we've already referenced the one thing that's like okay multiple people are seeing similar things that's mm-hmm. interesting that kind of that kind of gives legitimacy to it even if multiple people are using the same drug yeah. you're not going to have the exact same hallucination right no so yeah. but that's the other thing too the hallucinations are if they are hallucinations are extremely vivid like yeah. i've and have physical manifestations exactly too. like i can't think of any times that i've hallucinated off the top of my head but like <laughs> I can picture it being that, like, if you are hallucinating something, if you're using a benzodrine or whatever, you know, it's going to be kind of a floating, fleeting thing, Mm -hmm. right? Like, oh, you're going to see something, but then it's not there. You're hallucinating. It's like it's there, but then it isn't, right? It's not like it's, oh, my God, there's a thing perched on the front of my plane, banging on the window of my plane, and then another one over here, and it's, like, really vivid. And one sucking out the... Like, that is the best acid that you've ever taken in your life kind of hallucination. Not Mm -hmm. like, oh, I'm a little bit out of it because I'm cold and I've taken too much benzodrine kind of hallucination. Yeah. That's, like, full-blown, like... That's salvia hallucination. <laughs> like, no like, kidding, yeah. And the fact that this was, yeah, again, so widely documented and has these sorts of things, like, where there's substances, like, say, sand found, where sand should yeah. never be. And mm. it's not, like... That's not a hallucination. Like, is your, is your entire unit hallucinating the exact same... You know what I mean? Right. Is this... Is, yeah, is this a mass hallucination? Yeah, it's just very inconsistent. <laughs> Stella. Oh my gosh, our dog is snoring so Got loud. Got a snoring bulldog. <laughs> We love it, though. Yeah. So that kind of brings me to our second sort of more uh, um, skeptical theory, and that's the idea that it could have been gas fumes. Right. And this was particular to the Lindbergh account. Uh, I actually came across this in the 14 Times, um, one of their forums, actually, and it was an anonymous um, contribution, but I'll read it out anyway. Okay. He says here, uh, The Spirit of St. Louis has a strange design feature. The main fuel tank was placed directly in front of Lindbergh because he didn't want to be caught between it and the engine if he had to have a forced landing. It normally would have been placed behind his seat. 
My point is that the fumes from the tank might have had a hallucinogenic effect. Coupled with a lack of sleep and boredom, um, he couldn't see out of the plane and had to use a periscope. Not that he would have seen much anyway. He must have sent his head into a spin. And that's the end of the quote. But that's, what? Okay, wait a second. He couldn't see out of the plane and had to use a periscope? You couldn't see where you're going. Actu- I actually saw like a sketch what? of the of the cockpit of Lindbergh's plane, and what? it was just bizarre. It's like, yeah, it's like there's I think there's glass on the side, but like when you're looking forward, it's just the mechanics. What? How would you even? How would you feel comfortable with that? That's well, crazy. How would you feel comfortable at all flying a plane across the Atlantic for thirty three hours? You're literally flying a box blind to- across. Oh, shit. Yeah, that's what it, that's what those things looked like, right? Like even yeah. when we watched the uh, uh, one of the Amelia Earhart movies, and we did, were re- researching for that oh, episode yeah. when yeah. she did her transatlantic flight, it's like it's literally like a soapbox car with wings, is what it looks like. It's like crazy the amount of the amount of oh man the amount of guts that that would take for Bloomberg yeah. and for oh it's insane. Couldn't pay me to do that. That's for sure. No thanks. No, no. But that's an interesting theory. I it mean, is. obviously, placement of the gas oh, tank would matter. I mean. I don't know. Sorry, that's a big stretch. Um, (laughs) Honestly, though, yeah, there was uh, another reply to this uh, anonymous contribution on the 14 Times forum. And I thought that this, again, was a good reply. So it says here, um, quote, putting the fuel tank ahead of the pilot isn't all that unusual in terms of aircraft design. Other options include putting the pilot seat on top or in front of the tank. Also, aviation fuel is not a hallucinogen. And even if Lindbergh had smelt any fumes from it, it would have been enough for him to abandon his flight. Leaking fuel and fires are, after all, one of the worst ha- hazards that can be set at aircraft, end hmm. quote. Uh, yeah. That was from Jerry underscore B. But yeah, I know that, that's a good point, too. So, yeah. uh, are... I'm not really buying you, that theory. Can you hallucinate from... Like, you can get lightheaded. You would think that... It's I, not directly hallucinating from that. It's a circumstantial. So it's like if it, you're huffing gas fumes... Hallucinating from a lack of oxygen because you're ingesting this gas? Yeah. And at know. altitude and at temperature and whatever. I, I don't, don't really know. buy it either, but no. it is definitely something that could... Uh, and that, the thing is, too, like this plane design, was this replicated in RAF pilots and, and you say U.S. aircraft pilots? Like, I don't believe so. No. Again, I um, have to do a little more research on that one. Yeah, well... I'm not buying it anyway, so nah. phase it. <laughs> phase it. It's phase. Honestly, we don't really have too, too many other theories. Like, Well, the main one is we've kind of been alluding to the whole time that these are like, like kind of like spirits or like... That they're metaphysical creatures. Yeah. That they are only... Yeah, that that these pilots were passing through areas where they just happened to be. I mean, it's like any cryptid creature. Like, that's kind of the... Well, metaphysical and cryptid creature are two different things, obviously. Mm -hmm. But it's like we've talked about creatures that kind of fall somewhere in between. Our last week's episode, the bunyip, was one of those kind of creatures. It's sort of this spiritual, almost metaphysical kind of creature that appears sometimes, sometimes it doesn't. Ogopogo, kind of the same thing. Mm -hmm. These gremlins aren't tied to, like, indigenous folklore or anything like that. Unless you reach all the way back to ancient China. But you can, you do get interpretations of, like, fairies and things that have similar nefarious sort of, where they'll hide things or they'll, like, um, you'll, you'll, you know, your car keys will be where they're not supposed to be or something. No, for sure. I guess my point is, is that, like, with those, with, like, the bunyips and those types of things, it's, like, it's a metaphysical creature, but it has a very distinct habitat. 
Mm-hmm. It's almost like you look at it as if you're looking for a cryptid creature, yeah. not a mes- metaphysical creature, right? Yeah. This and is, on that note, well... No, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, just, they don't have wings. There's no wings described in any of these accounts. So it's like, where did the frick did these come from? Like, that is a very good point that I don't think we've made. Yeah. They, these things are flying up there, harassing airplanes, and they do not have wings. That mm. is absolutely they've got, bizarre. They've got, like, superhuman grip. It's like... how are they hanging on to these planes while they're flying around? Yeah, it's... <laughs> Either that, like, it almost reminds me of, like, a a cryptid version of electronic fog. Yeah, almost, right? Like, yeah. you're, you're going through a patch of something, and, yeah, it just happens to be these things Another living there. Another question, too, is, like, what about commercial and passenger, like, you know, like, um, just non, non-war-related commercial flights at this exact time, um, private flights, like pilots that are just flying their own little plane, like Amelia Earhart would have been doing, that there type of thing. There have been almost no instance instances so of gremlins since the 1940s. But Various- obviously, obviously there was commercial um, flights happening during the war. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. So yeah. like, like I mean, we've never come across I mean, probably not any. in the same areas, obviously. So you're, you're saying that maybe gremlins have a specific airspace? I'm thinking that, um, <laughs> no, I'm saying that like, like anything in, like when, whenever we talk about interdimensional or, or metaphysical entities and stuff like that, there's specific locations where it can happen. Ogopogo is only going to be seen in Okanagan Lake. But You're not these gonna... aren't specific to one location. Well, you could argue they are. I mean, the the battles that are happening in the air are taking place in sort of, a, you know, but specific what about, theaters. What right? about the other, the one that took place um, in, what was it, the, not Los Angeles airbase, going to Honolulu, that one where it was like a little more deadly. If you believe that to be gremlins. But, and then we get accounts from Britain, we get accounts from the Kremlin over in Russia. That's true, very so true. I think it's a lot more widespread. Yeah. I guess I'm just saying that it's not the same as, like, Sasquatch, you know? There's a there's a hairy man in Pakistan, there's a Sasquatch in Canada, there's a Bigfoot in California, there's, there's this di- yeah. over there, right? Yeah, there's a big difference between having that one creature and having a bunch of right. creatures. Yeah. That's, that's the other part of it too. Yeah. That's honestly, I feel like the hive mentality of it as how they're like described swarm, yeah. and the fact that there's swarms of them kind of, I don't know, like it doesn't legitimize the theory of interdimensionality by any means, but it makes me think that it makes kind of more sense that these are creatures that when you cross through their space, they'll come out and mess with you. Yeah. So I don't think they live in the sky, mm-hmm. but if they are real, obviously that, yeah, like they're that's their space, man. That's their space. And that kind of, the, the idea that this interdimensionality, that I feel particularly applies to the Lindenberg case because, like, he could have transcended into another dimension. And, like, the idea that one description where he basically, it sounded like he opened up his third eye. It was kind of what it yeah. sounded like, right? Where he didn't have to turn around. He was, like, literally he could see in all directions at the same time. Right. Like, that to me is very... It's basically the idea of like, like that these things and like that type of experience is, is happening right now all the time around us. It's just whether or not we can perceive it or not. Yeah. So it's like, exactly. and, and the yeah. creatures of that world, right? Totally. And even that guy, the, um, Hubert, like he was saying, like, I had never, I never knew, uh, known of this, um, whole different side of reality, essentially, right? Yeah. Where, where these, these creatures exist in this plane where, the large majority of people are not conscious of them. And the way that that sort of reads to me is a lot, it's very similar to a lot of paranormal phenomena, right? Yeah. The existence of ghosts, for example, or spirits, or like even the, the one episode we did just recently on, uh, 
on the lake, um, the invisible city, yeah. Kitesh, yeah. and like the spirits from there, and how like um, many people, only the most pious will see them. We'll you see know it, what I mean? They'll hear it. Yeah. And so they maybe you it. need to gain some sort of spiritual enlightenment, to a certain, yeah. or be stressed to such an extent, like in the case of these pilots in the RAF and wherever else in World War Two, that they, uh, that their the limits of their consciously functioning brains are altered to an extent where things like this are happening. They can see that now. Yeah. 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 Did that sound smart? I don't even know. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) I want to know what all you listeners think. Yeah. We're going to be doing, we're going to be doing a poll this week for oh, this absolutely episode. because so check it out on our to. social media like we'll do one mm-hmm. on facebook and instagram and twitter twitter and twitter yeah we'll, we'll put that. it out there for sure yeah i definitely don't like just to just to tie this in because i yeah just to quickly go back to that 1939 mm-hmm. incident with yeah. the um with the the 12 dead crewmen i don't think that that was gremlins yeah it doesn't sound like having gone through this that that's like the same thing Unless that was the super, super nefarious uh, species or, of gremlin that exactly. never got referenced anywhere else. Or maybe there was just like, they were like trying to pull this funny prank like they always do. And then it just goes horribly wrong. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, ooh. ooh. Maybe we'll disappear <laughs> for another couple hundred years. because, <laughs> Or well, after the 40s, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> but it does kind of tie in a little bit, I guess, to the Kelly Hopkinsville. Right. Um, where yeah. it was like, those were goblins similar mm-hmm. to the gremlins, but... But floating, you know, walking this line between is this a is this a UFO incident or or a cryptid creature incident? So I Who but knows? I but at the end of the day, I don't think gremlins are are uh, you know killers? reconnaissance things coming from a UFO. I don't think they're aliens. I don't think yeah. they're killers. I think if they are real, <laughs> killers. killers. I, I think if they if they are a real thing, it's like one of those. Uh, yeah, it's uh, they're met, they're a metaphysical entity that can only be seen at certain mm. times. You're not going to catch me flying any uh, retro vintage uh, 1940s <laughs> Spitfires anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, try getting me into just like even a modern plane. That, that That's a hassle. I don't yeah. like that. I don't like being in the air. Yeah. I don't like... I just don't. And now, don't and now when we fly, okay. you'll be looking out the window trying to... There's something on the wing. <laughs> Some thing. <laughs> I love that line. Ace yeah. Ventura, you rock. Oh, well, I guess so that kind of wraps her up, it, folks. It basically does, yeah. Like, where, yeah. I was stoked on this episode. This was a fun one. It was just fun. It, 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 it was kind of like, it ended up being a little more lighthearted than I thought it would be. Mm-hmm. But because we, you know, there's nobody dies. Like, nobody gets, no. other than, well, other than the 12 crewmen on that one incident in 1939. Yeah. But in terms of the gremlin stories, it's, it's just, just a fun just story. Fun. fun. It's folklore. That's yeah. what we're all about. Totally. We like to cover the history. So obviously the World War II was really fun just for us to dive back into. Yeah. And yeah, we actually, we got a really fun one coming up next week too. Hey, should we, should we give a little teaser for that? Sure. It cool. has something to do with uh, uh, AC and DC currents. Yeah. And um, um, we're not going to get super sciencey, but we're going to do uh, a little bit of an expose, um, the myths behind the man. Yeah. Um, and that will be with um, a Dash of Science host, Chris. Yep. And we're going to be talking about Tesla. Yeah. So, super yeah. excited about that. So it's going to be fun. Definitely. Uh, but yeah, as usual, you know, uh, please reach out to us on our social medias. We've had some really fun responses this last yeah, week. Yeah, we've been chatting back and forth with a few people on mm-hmm. uh, via email, which has been so much fun. Yeah, uh, so on the socials as well. Yeah. Twitter has been really active. Uh, we've had lots of great feedback totally. from the Bunny Up episode. Hey? Yeah, t- more, more feedback than any other episode in the past, honestly, I oh, think. Like, it's up there for sure. Yeah. 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 So you can reach out to us at intotheportalmailbox at gmail.com 
anytime. Like we yeah. love emailing back and forth with people on there. Mm-hmm. Our Twitter handle is at into the portal one, the number mm-hmm. one, and Amber's on there at Amber Rain nineteen ninety two. And yeah. come follow us on Instagram as well at into the portal podcast on Instagram, Definitely. and we're always posting stuff about the shows. We are, and then of course there's the Facebook group too. Uh, we have a forum which. Uh, definitely yeah um, join us so we love to have little conversations and just uh bring in interesting articles relevant you know to uh to whatever it doesn't have to be specific to the episode it's just whatever we find interesting or you guys find interesting want to bring to the table we just love talking to you guys we just love interacting and it's just super fun so come chat with us Mm -hmm. well thank you so much for listening to this episode and uh until next time until next time on into the portal